are you guys sleepy today? Is this a, a little quiet, sleepy crowd? Should we do some spirit, spirit? We got spirit. How about you? I promise we won't. I promise not to. So with that in mind, let, let me dive right in and let me give you just this sort of precursor for today's text. If we are not careful as a people in approaching the text we're going to look at today, we could miss the forest for the trees. We could see just what's right in front of us, which is fine and good and probably helpful, but we will miss what is going on on a deeper level that might actually bring life to us and joy and goodness. So if at any point throughout today in the text you're feeling uh, no hope and no joy, it's time to pull a trap door spiritually and go a little deeper. Because in this text, there is a depth of goodness and grace if we will get just below the surface. Sound good? Okay, James chapter 3, week 3 of our ongoing series in the book of James. I'm telling you guys, it's a tough one, but, but hang tough, okay? We can, we're going to do this together, okay? James 3. One, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches by a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. There's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. But he, but wait, there's more, says the person selling you something on TV. Verse 7, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and our Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so, blessing and cursing, come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out both fresh water and bitter? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you cannot draw fresh water from a salty spring. It's, it's an opening section of text that I think could e make even the least self-aware among us Go, is it me, Lord? Was it me? Are you talking to me? And it could make even those of us with the thickest of skin begin to feel a sensitivity as James continues on and on and on in what is interestingly and ironically his own grand speech of sorts, right? I hope that's not lost on you. I think it's worth noting here, friends, a number of things. But as we get started, it's worth noting that he is talking about us. And that is not all that 
common as the primary target of a text in Scripture. So often when we read Scripture, the author's talking about God. The Apostle Paul so often is training us in what God is like. The, the Old Testament author so often is training us in Israel and what they are like. But this text is talking about us. And so let me suggest a pathway through this text to find the deeper grace and goodness in it today. And, and one of those is to receive this as primarily not, primarily not, a window into God's heart. Primarily. It doesn't mean we're not getting a window into God's heart, but primarily, this is not a window into God's heart. And let me go further as to say, I think we would be wise to also not view it primarily as a doorway that's introducing us into the way of Christ, how to follow Jesus. A little bit more on that later as we get to stuff at the end of the passage. So if it's not primarily a window into God's heart, and if it's not primarily an introduction into the ways of Christ, what the heck is it, Stu? And I I think it's really important that we view this chapter of the letter from James as a mirror to our own souls. The very end of the chapter, James turns his attention to the wisdom and the ways of God, but even there, James is still kind of holding us and holding a mirror up to us, exhorting us to look within ourselves with an honest estimation and reflection of who we are. I would suggest to you that the text will bring to life our walk with Jesus and our mission in his world if it serves us not merely as a cautionary rebuke of bad things we all do, but instead primarily as an introduction into a practice field of sorts of self-reflection. In fact, let, let me take it even a step further and maybe less practical and more theological because we have a, a really beautiful history of this for ourselves in the Old Testament. Think back to Moses, and he, he comes down Mount Sinai with this tablet, this stone, this rock, whatever it was with the Ten Commandments on it, these precepts that Israel is to live by. And, and among those ten, at least two of them, and one could argue that you could bend and interpret a few others, are also about the tongue and the way we speak. But at least two of them speak specifically to the things that we say and how we say them. Ten Commandments, guys. Like the top ten list. Like don't murder. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't cheat with someone else's spouse. And don't misuse the name of the Lord. And don't lie. Don't give false testimony. And the, the reality that's sort of percolating the the tension maybe that you feel when you read a text like this is this reality that, that for a lot of us, especially some of your um, maybe more fundamental or, I don't want to say the word, uh, some of your other upbringings, let me just say it that way, would, would 
sweep you away back to a, a religion, back to a faith practice that says, you're awful, you're horrible, do better. And if the Old Testament taught us nothing, and it should teach us a lot, but if, if it's taught us nothing, allow it to teach us that we just can't do it on our own. We just can't live up to the Ten Commandments on our own. I bet for some of us, by 9 o'clock this morning, like good people, by 9 o'clock this morning, we already broke a couple of them. Like, if the top, like, we just can't do it on our own. So what a shame it would be in the shadow of the cross of Christ who has died and forgiven our sin and covered us and given us the Holy Spirit. What a shame it would be to then approach text and go, okay, I'm right back to Israel. I'm right back to just trying to work harder, just trying to do better, just trying to... Be less crummy. Because all that will lead us to is shame and guilt and being more crummy. And and let me also caution us in these early minutes to not simply settle for the takeaway that um, our grandmothers gave us wisely, I think. If you don't have anything nice to say, right, don't say anything at all. Well, like, that works fine at, like, a once-a-year dinner party with your spouse's workmate who you don't like. You just go into dinner going, I'm just, they're going to talk about politics. They're going to talk about whatever. They're going to talk about my football team, and I just, and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Well, yeah, you can white-knuckle it for, like, an hour or two, but that's no, that's no way to live, and we all know that. We all know that the, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It just will not serve us in any sort of sustainable way. You see, if, if we approach this as one more thing that we try to do in our own power, I think we will invariably land with one of two outcomes, maybe a combination of both. And the first outcome is we'll just simply fail at it and wish we had not. We'll just say another stupid thing, and that'll be a shame. Or we'll just decide, oh, I'm just never going to speak again. Anybody Anybody have that person in their life? Well, I'll just never say another word about it. Anybody ever said that sentence? I have like in the last 48 hours. So I I think it's important as we come back to the text, right? The the tongue is a flame of fire. The the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. The the tongue is deceitful beyond all merit. All these things. As we come back to that text, let's first anchor that in what God is up to in the universe, in his redemptive work. The Apostle Paul writes in James 5, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Another translation says, when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, it produces this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. He goes on in verse 24 to say, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. So since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part 
of our lives. So we come to the text, not with some like newfound resolve to just be better. Rather, we approach it reminding ourselves, here's another space in time, another space of my life where I can turn over control to the Spirit's leadership. Where I can say to the Spirit, you're in charge. I'm attuned to what you lead me. And with all of that as our preamble, would you pray with me? And then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, may your will and your way be shaped in us and in through us. We recognize that this text uh, says a lot about us, and most of it is all true. Uh, But God, I, I just sensed from you that if what we all walk out of here with today is another reminder of how crummy we are, we will stop short of cooperation with your spirit to transform us, to change us, to make us new in your image. So keep our heads in the game in these moments and keep our souls and our hearts pliable so that you as the great potter can shape us like clay on a wheel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jen and I's third-born Soph, who a lot of you know very well, just moved back east early this year um, and took the nicest car we had in the fleet of the streeter cars. It's real news. Um, we, we began to look at where all these kids are living in, in all these different states and went, all right, well, you're going to snow and, you know, it's Cleveland, Ohio, which is awful. So at least you should have a decent car if you're going to have to live in Cleveland, right? That was sort of our, if you're from Cleveland, I'm not sorry at all. It's just really a terrible city. Uh, but anyway, so we sent her, we sent her with the nicest car in the fleet. But up until that point, you could pull up into our driveway and it was like this sort of tale of two ages of vehicles. We have uh, my beloved Ford Ranger, which sits in the parking lot this morning, uh, that I have had for eons. It was built in the early 1990s, which for those of us Xers feels like that was just yesterday. Uh, to, to those of you who are Gen Z, I recognize that's like 40 years ago. So, I mean, it's just like my kids call it a classic car. And I go, well, I mean, not really. And they go, well, you know, sort of. Um, but, I mean, you kind of have these two cars, and, and my Ford Ranger is just this wacky little throwback and in some regards it was built in the 90s but it's really nothing changed between 1970 and 1990 in a Ford Ranger it's like pretty much the same few little a little oddities and changes and the really the only modern amenities in my Ford Ranger are two things one is a stereo that we put in the car about 10 years ago which you know got it to like year 2000 uh, and this little thing that that the Z's in the room won't know. It's called power steering. Um, that's actually an up amenity uh, for, right? I mean, that's a big deal in this car because there were a lot of these Ford Rangers that didn't have power steering. And, and for, you know, our students um, in the congregation, they're going, what is, what's not power steering? Well, it's how you got muscles back in the day, you know? <laughs> Remember that? Some of you had cars like that where you're like, it was an effort to turn the thing, you know? Uh, my Ranger has crank windows. Uh, it has levers, mechanical levers to adjust the seats. Uh, it actually has keys that you have to have 
to unlock the door, to, you know, start the ignition, things that, you know, in these modern cars we just don't have. Contrast that against our newer car, which is like nothing special. It's a Toyota Corolla. It's like the cheapest thing just about that Toyota makes. But that car darn near will drive itself. It's got lane assist. It, it'll stay straight in the lane. It's got adaptive cruise control where I can just set how far I want to be behind the next car. Somehow, so it still crashes into stuff. But um, it has all these great amenities. It, it's got heated seats in a Toyota Corolla. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty great. But one of the features in that Toyota Corolla that uh, is often forgotten, and I bet every single one of your cars has the same feature, uh, it's this little flip-down visor, um, which I know all cars have a flip-down visor, but on the flip-down visor, there's this flip-up light that you can flip up, and a light comes on, and there's a mirror there, right? Um, and this has not been standard forever. In fact, my Ford Ranger, um, the mirror that's in there, it's aftermarket. I mean, you know, I upgraded because I'm pretty fancy. Um, this is the mirror that is in the Ford Ranger. Do you remember these guys? Any Gen Zs remember? Okay. Like the little metal clips, and you go down to the auto zone or the Napa Auto Parts or whatever, and, and you're 16 years old, and you go down the aisle with all that stuff, and you get like the, the little trash can for your car, anybody, and you get the little tree-shaped air freshener, and you got a mirror so that, you know, you could whatever, do whatever you got to do uh, in the car. You see, somewhere along the way, in fact, my Ranger at one time even had a second thing on the other mirror where I could slide CDs in there. Anybody ever have a CD player? Remember those? We don't even own a CD player anymore in our house. I, I don't even know what I would, I don't, I don't even know if I could play a CD at my house anymore. Somewhere along the way in that Ford Ranger and in most of the rest of our cars that didn't have mirrors on the visors, we went down and we bought one and we added one. And nowadays, they just come standard on every car. It's not like a feature you pay extra for. You just get a mirror and the visor. I think the same should be true about the gift of self-reflection in our lives. And here's, here's the difficult reality for so many of us as followers of Jesus, that we, we will walk with this cliched sentence. It doesn't mean we don't mean it, but it's a cliched sentence of, oh, well, I, you know, I'm new in Jesus. And so somehow being new in Jesus means self-reflection is optional. I don't really need to reflect on who I am or who I'm becoming because Jesus just sees me as all new. And so to some extent, that's used at times as what friends across the table would read as an excuse to just continue being awful. I think this text is encouraging us to be intentionally self-reflective. if we look back at it right out the gate in verses 1 and 2, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. When we studied this as a leadership team on Tuesday night, one around the table reflected back, uh, this is my paraphrase, but reflected back something along the lines of, Sometimes that judgment comes from the people who are listening. And, and certainly James, and I think you'll see why in a little bit, James is reflecting back the judgment before God. But the truth is that those of us who teach in the church are judged more strictly. 
That, like what we say matters in the universe. I'm not a therapist, but if, if I was and we wanted to all cry here today, we would take out a piece of paper and say, you know, what's one thing that was said to you as a child that was hurtful that you never forgot? And what's one thing that was said to you as a child that was kind and gracious that you also never forgot? And we would have this juxtaposition of our words do matter. Remember, he says a small bit directs a large horse. A small rudder directs a huge ship, even through strong winds. And our tongues make grand speeches. I want to offer us two key truths from the text today and then three kind of practical steps. The, The first key truth is this, that those of us who teach should lead the way in self reflection Those of us who teach ought to lead the way in self-reflection. That means our teachers in the other room right now are teaching BC kids. That means those of us who stand up here and share testimonies. That means those of us who stand up there and sing testimonies. Those of us who speak up around a fire pit at sacred conversations or, or speak up at a spiritual retreat. Those of us who teach should lead the way in self-reflection. come to us as no surprise that once again, just like in chapter 2 of James, James, who's the brother of Jesus, is providing a little shorthand here to the reader, a code language that the original readers would have picked up on immediately. Remember, this is only written 10 to 12, maybe 14 years at the most after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And so the people reading it had lived life with Jesus for the most part. So James is offering some code language around this. In fact, we go back to the teachings of Jesus directly in Matthew 12. And he's on a rift of sorts. And I'm actually going to share with you the nicer part of Jesus' rift because it was pretty, it was, it, was, it was rough. He says, the tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, exclamation point. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Jesus speaks really strongly here, right? And it becomes no surprise from where James gets his heavy hand when he talks about the words that we use as humans. But but let us not miss the core of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying to us, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. In fact, Jesus might actually be saying just the opposite. For whatever is in your heart determines what you will say. 
You've heard me riff on this in similar ways when we talk about anger and we use language like I lost my temper and I often will push back and say, no, nobody's ever lost their temper. They've just found it where they left it last. (laughs) We don't lose our, I have no idea why I just put my fist through that wall. You put your fist through that wall because you have fantasized about acting out in violence and you finally got an opportunity that seemed reasonable. That's why we put our fists through walls. That's why we throw dishes across rooms. That's why we scream at the top of our lungs, our loved ones, because we have actually fantasized about doing it for ages, and we finally have an opportunity that we feel justified to act out. It doesn't just happen, and you go, oh, I have no idea where that came from. How in the world did I land in this 49er jersey? You put it on. That's how. And the same is true of the things we say. Things don't just slip out. Oh, I don't know why I said that. Well, maybe you should find out why. I have no idea where that came from. I do. And, and, and I say all of this, friends, holding a mirror. Because we're reflecting back what's actually in our hearts. Jesus' words here. For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A couple other translations say it maybe a more familiar way if you've been around church any period of time. And I actually enjoy the ways these say it. The NIV says, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Sarcasm comes out. Anger and hatred comes out. Gossip comes out. Generosity and goodness comes out. The ESV translation says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says, Brood of snakes, evil person, giving an account for idle words. Words we say will acquit or condemn us. And I guess the point here is very simple if it's if you've not already landed at it on your own. It comes back to our hearts. What's going on in our soul? Look back with me at James chapter 3. Come back to our initial text and pick up in verse 7. Because people can tame all kinds of animals. Birds, reptiles, and fish. Who's training reptiles? Like who's doing this Anyway, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but no one can tame the tongue. If that's not an invitation to say, okay, well, then my job is not to tame my tongue. My job is not to, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I mean, again, that's really good for a dinner party. It's really good if you're in an argument and you know you're about to say something you shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, zip it. But what we can affect is the change in our hearts, which out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 9. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made 
in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely this is not right. And then he carries on with these parallels and analogous statements. The second truth that I leave us all with is this, that we cannot tame the tongue, but we can transform the heart. We cannot tame the tongue, but we can transform the heart. Now, there, there's some caveats there. You know, we on our own can't transform the heart, right? We go back to the Old Testament, can't do it on your own. It, it's the work of the Spirit in us, Galatians 5, right? When the Spirit controls our lives, He produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and patience and self-control. And I always forget that eighth one. What was it? Yes. He's producing this. So we can't tame the tongue, but in cooperation with the work of the Spirit, we can transform the heart. Now, it will take our effort. It won't just happen. Like a tube of toothpaste. When the squeeze is on, friends, what is inside always comes out. And this is not just some like trite one-liner. This is the reality of the life that we live. And, and this, my friends, is why so many of us, so much of the time, give so much effort in life to never being in a situation where the squeeze is on. It's because we actually know that when the squeeze is on, What's inside will come out, and I don't want what's inside to come out. So I will just avoid at all costs any interaction in my life where the squeeze might be on. And my encouragement is, you know what? Talk about politics more at dinner parties, not less. <laughs> I'm serious. Talk about religion more with your atheistic friends, not less. Talk about these hot-button things more often, not less. If for no other reason, then you will hold a mirror up to yourself and see what's going on. Sit with your friend who is of a different ethnic background to you and ask them questions about their experience, not with the universe, not that that doesn't matter, but with you. How do you experience me in light of our racial differences? Oh, yes, there's no chance. Why? Why is there no chance? Is it possible that there's no chance because you're afraid that when the squeeze comes on in that conversation, something you don't like might come out? Well, maybe having that thing out in the open would be the best thing for you. So we avoid difficult discussions. We run from conflict. We resist community. We risk nothing. We ostracize people who don't celebrate us. We refuse to be in any room where we don't have power. And so much of this avoidance is due to the reality that we know, like on a guttural existential level, that if I put myself in that situation, who I actually am will come out, and I don't know that I like what might come or I don't even know what might come out. But here's the reality, friends. 
God has a long history of putting his beloved in the squeeze, whether we want it or not. Would you rather put yourself in the squeeze so at least you, like, have some control of the scenario versus waiting for God to put you in the squeeze? Remember Moses, he had to come down that mountain eventually with those Ten Commandments and speak up. Esther had to go into the king's court and speak up. Jonah had been given a message for Nineveh. He had to speak up. David wrote song after song after song. Put aside the fact that some of them didn't rhyme very well and were just garbage art, but like some of them are just mean. Have you read the Psalms, friends? Take my enemies to the shore of the river and crush their skulls. That's like real news. Wow, David. Sheesh. You know, inner monologue, pal. Um, you know? But Peter was asked by Jesus, do you love me? Speak up, Peter. Do you love me? You see, in the words of Yoda, I'm trying, Star Wars fans, I'm trying. Do or do not, there is no trying. But the reminder here is that we'll either speak up and what's in our heart will come out and then we can attend to what's in our heart. And if we are surrounded with people who really love us, they'll reflect what just came out. Hey, that was actually a really hateful thing you just said. Hey, that was actually, ooh, offensive. And then we have an opportunity to deal with what's out there. Or we can take the other side and go, well, I'm just going to try really, really hard to never say anything bad. No, that's probably not going to go well. It's like skiing down a hill and seeing that tree you don't want to hit. You just keep staring at the tree you don't want to hit. Next thing you know, you smack the tree you didn't want to hit. Or the third option, well, I'll just never say another word again. See, there is there is no try. There is only one. And in the case of our tongue, in the case of the things that we say, This is a guarantee that life provides us, that you will speak up at some point, and your words and my words will, in fact, reveal our heart. It will reveal what's in our heart. So what do we do? So let me give you some tangibles. These are not all-inclusive. These are not comprehensive by any stretch. These are three, I think, things that can help us, church. So take them or leave them. Add your fourth or fifth to it that I missed, and uh, send it out on Facebook with a snarky comment, and um, that'll be ironic and fun for the rest of us, right? First, keep early short accounts and apologize early and often. Practice this, practice this, friends. It's two. Practice this. I'm holding the mirror. I messed up. Forgive me. Can, can we, could we rid ourselves from the collective sentence of, I'm really sorry what I said hurt your feelings? That's actually not an apology. That's an insult. You're so soft and sensitive, you couldn't handle how strong I am. So I'm really sorry that hurt your feelings. I'm really sorry. This is the worst one. Have you ever had this? I'm really sorry you got your feelings hurt. Well, I didn't until now, but now they're kind of hurt, right? So let's practice. You know what? I'm really sorry. That thing I said was offensive. Not I'm sorry I offended you. I'm really sorry I've been offended. Let's own our stuff, friends. Let's keep short accounts. Don't wait for the other to come to you and say, hey, what was with that? Lead the way. Hey, I said a thing the other day, and it was offensive. Can we talk about it? 
Number two, uh, plumb the depths of your heart with five whys. Um, I, and, and I get that this is like some Simon Sinek stuff, but I, we can find a Bible verse for anything. I still think it's really, really helpful. Um, five whys, okay? And maybe the first why is, why did I say that? The, right? The thing falls out of your mouth. And literally, while it's falling out of my mouth, I, have you done this where you see the words forming in the ether and you're like, come back, ah, but they're already out? Well, rather than just simply hiding and feeling the embarrassment of it, which is probably fine and good, and we should probably feel some of that, what if we paused after that and said, why, why did I say that? And don't let ourselves off the hook with, well, because I was just tired. I was just mad. Or because that person makes me nervous. No, why did I say that? And then when we have an answer, well, I, I said it because it was just a dumb thing to say. Well, why? Second why. Why was it a dumb thing to say? Well, because, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? Ask yourself five whys. Five whys. If you're sure you got to the bottom of it at four, ask a fifth just to play, just to make it something. Five ones, two. Uh, third, uh, before an important conversation, pray, Holy Spirit, will you whisper your words to me and through me? Will you whisper your words to me and through me? We live in this culture for at least a lot of us. I'm looking around the room. Uh, at least a lot of us spend a lot of our day in pre-planned conversations. This is like a weird thing. Like we're not an agrarian society anymore where you just run into the neighbor out farming your land and have a chat. You Like we have Zoom calls with agendas. Like I at work go to meetings that are designed to plan a meeting for a future meeting. I have had three-layer meetings in the last week. And I know many of you, like we know what we're going to talk about and we know the conversations that are going to bend us, that are going to tweak us, that are going to irritate us. Let us be a people who pray before the conversation. God, I'm going into a tough discussion here. Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Would you speak through me? So that it's not my words, it's yours. So that I might decrease and you might increase. This is the prayer of John the Baptist. Let us be a people who cooperate with the work of the Spirit to transform our hearts from the inside out and the things we say will take care of the rest. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus. For some of us, I, I think we just need to give ourselves permission to be reflective. That we live in this world that is like produce, 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 get this done, get that done. And the thought of just sitting and being reflective feels almost like cheating or like, like we're stealing. God, would you... For those of us who need it, just give us permission to be self-reflective. And God, for those of us who are uncomfortable with that, because we're so afraid of, if I reflect on all that Stu said today that embarrassed Stu, I, I will, I'll run out of a paper before I run out of things. Give us the courage to step in. Give us the courage to reflect because the things we say matter. And may our hearts be changed in the process, God. I pray that.